You're listening to the King's Church Podcast. Visit us online at kingswisbeach.org.uk. Right. Well, today we're returning to our series about Joseph in the book of Genesis. Uh, A week or two back, Clive spoke about um, the brothers' first trip to Egypt where they go and they don't realize it's their brother who's there, but um, yes, they've gone there, they've bought grain because there's a great famine. And now today we're going to be looking at chapter 43 of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles there, have it open at chapter 43 of Genesis. I'm not going to read the whole thing at one fell swoop because it's a bit long and would take as long as the sermon, but um, that's where we're going from. Now, the other week, Clive had the title, A Troubled Conscience. And if you remember, um, Joseph had been sold as a slave by his brothers many years before, and through a series of amazing ups and downs, he'd ended up being like the prime minister of Egypt in charge of the famine relief project. And so when there's a famine across the entire area, his brothers back in Canaan are sent to buy some grain and they're there buying them from Joseph. So that's the place we're up to. But when they get there, Joseph of course recognized them, but you know, this is many years later and he's now dressed like the full scale important Egyptian. They didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. And we see how, you know, to start with, Joseph was actually very, antagonistic towards them, accusing them of being spies and all the rest of it. Then he's asking questions, wants to know if his youngest brother, Benjamin, is still alive. Just bear in mind, because it's significant this, Benjamin was the youngest of the 12 brothers and the only one who was a full brother to Joseph. They all had the same father, but only Benjamin had the same mother as Joseph. And they, would both, they had both been favored sons, Joseph especially, because that was the favorite wife. It's one of these good arguments against polygamy, but there we are. Now, what we have here is a very broken family. Already, these brothers, when they find themselves in a lot of trouble in Egypt, are saying, it's because of what we did to our brother. Joseph has heard them making this confession. They're saying, oh, we shouldn't have done what we did. You know, we, we, and God is punishing us. That's what they were saying. So it's like they're they're finally admitting their guilt among themselves, not knowing, of course, that Joseph can speak their language. He's using an interpreter, but he understands every word they say. And we begin to find Joseph's heart is softening And so instead of keeping them all there and sending one brother back to find uh, Benjamin, he just keeps one brother and sends all the rest back. But he's told them they can't come back for more grain unless they bring their younger brother. That's trying to get a brief resume of what's happened so far. When they got home and told their father this, he was not happy. He was not letting go of Benjamin for anything. He'd already lost Joseph. He didn't know what had happened to him, but thought he was dead. And he was not gonna let go of his precious little Benjamin. This is quite a lot of years later. So Benjamin is actually not a little boy, even though they seem to talk about him as if he is. He is a young man at this point. 
But Jacob is not letting go of him, so he flatly refuses to let them go back to redeem the brother who was held hostage. And there it might have stayed, except that I expect everybody at this point was praying desperately for the famine to end. Only it didn't. See, Joseph had known that it would take seven years. And Pharaoh knew this because Joseph had told him because God had interpreted the dream. So they were already in Egypt for seven years of famine. That's why they had so much grain. But everybody else was desperately hoping it would end. And I expect Jacob thought, well, it'll be all right soon and then, then we'll, we'll be okay. Pity about Simeon, who's left hostage in Egypt, but uh, he's dispensable, Benjamin isn't, it would seem. But God didn't answer their prayers. The famine didn't stop. And eventually there comes the point where sheer need and necessity drives Jacob to say, you've got to go back and get more grain. How often does it happen that actually our first step towards doing what we know is the right thing to do is driven not by our happy obedience to the Lord, but by our own desperate need. And we're crying out to God in need. And he says, well, here's what you have to do. So here's Jacob, he says, go back, go back to Egypt, get more grain. Dad, we can't do that. He said we won't even get to see his face again unless we bring Benjamin. And here's Jacob, he says, oh, why did you have to tell him you had another brother? He says, we didn't know he was going to ask that. He was asking all these questions. We weren't expecting it. But that's what's happened. So here they are. What a mess this family is in. Joseph has gone, probably dead, they think. Simeon's a hostage. They're terrified they might lose Benjamin now. It's a complete stalemate until Judah steps up to the plate. Judah was the fourth brother. He's the one whose name means praise. And it kind of marked a change in attitude on his mother's part when she named him that. But Judah had told him, Dad, we have to take Benjamin. And what he says here, if you will send our brother along with us, we'll go down and buy food. But if you will not go down, if you will not send him, we will not go down. And then he also says to Israel, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. If I don't bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we hadn't delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Judah is the one who brings the unlocking of the situation. Before Reuben had offered, he'd said, I'll be the surety dad, and if I don't bring him back, you can kill two of my sons. Jacob was not impressed with that offer and it didn't work. But here is Judah saying, Dad, send him with me and I will be responsible. And if I don't bring him back, you can blame me all the rest of my life. And Judah is saying, I will stay here and I will bear that shame. So send him with me. And you know that worked. Interesting, because after the previous time when Joseph was lost, Judah 
beetled off to a Dulham for a long period because he couldn't cope with the grief and distress of his dad and the guilt he felt about it. Now we see Judah has come back and he's saying, I won't run off this time, Dad. If I don't bring Benjamin back, I'll pay the price myself. And of course, he's making a point to Jacob. If you don't, we're all going to die, including Benjamin. So one way or another, Dad, you risk losing him anyway. You've got to take this risk. And that's, that's important. It's not just about you, Dad. It's not even just about Benjamin. It's about all of us. And in this passage, we find that Jacob is suddenly being referred to by the other name God gave him, which is Israel. This was Jacob's name that God gave him after he finally um, surrendered in a wrestling match with God. And God said to him, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and have prevailed. Now, suddenly we find Jacob is being referred to as Israel. It's almost like he's grasped, not only is my whole family dependent on me doing what I know I have to do here, but actually the whole purpose of God is wrapped up in this. If this family dies, there will be no nation that comes from them through whom a saviour will come, through whom God's purpose for redeeming the entire creation can be brought about. It's absolutely crucial at this point. And sheer need drives, David to uh, drives Jacob to capitulate. So off they go. Now they've got to take double the amount of silver because those of you who've read the previous chapter know that actually Joseph in his generosity got the steward to put their silver back in their sacks. So they got the grain free and then they were panicking. They thought, oh, is this some kind of trap? What's going on? So Jacob says, take that lot and take a double amount of silver and take a special gift as well. Some of the special products of the land. You know, they didn't have grain and things, but it seems they still had some myrrh and some balm and some pistachio nuts, sort of luxury things. He says, take those to impress the man. Again, we're seeing this process of this family beginning to be reunited. And they're, and they're doing the right thing here. Clive talked about, you know, when you return the spare change to Tesco, because it's the right thing to do. So they say, yeah, we've got to return this silver that was returned to us, and of course, pay for the next lot, and we'll take a gift as well. We want to do everything we can to convince this man we're not spies, we're not dishonest, we're genuine, just genuine people looking for food, and we're honoring him. So, you know, we'll give him a present as well. It's a bit like when, uh, when Zacchaeus invited Jesus into the house and then got saved. And he says, I'm going to return all the money I've defrauded people of. And what's more, I'll pay it back four times over. So it's like, it's like I'll go beyond, not just what the law requires, but I'll go beyond that. And so here we see this same principle. If you're wanting to rebuild the bridge... You've got to be willing to go beyond the basic minimum here. But they're still scared. And when they get there, and Joseph sees them coming, and sees Benjamin's with them as well, he tells the steward, invite them to my house for dinner. Now, how gracious is that? How gracious. 
Having dinner with somebody, that's a way of saying, we're in fellowship together, we're friends. And this is the brother whom they'd sold into slavery and as far as they knew, had died in the meantime. So actually the beginning of rebuilding the relationship here is actually on Joseph's part. The one who was wronged is the one who's making the first move. Does that remind you of somebody he's foreshadowing? The one who was the ultimate payer of the price of all our sin did so because he made the first move. Jesus took our sins. He was the one person who didn't have to die because he never sinned, and instead he dies on our behalf. So we see Joseph here, this principle that, that God is gracious and merciful and we need to be demonstrating that in our relationships. And here's Joseph who desperately wants to see reconciliation in his family. You know, when, when he saw his brothers the first time and he heard them talking about, you know, oh, we did wrong to our brother, he's crying. Didn't let them see it, but he was crying. Now here, as soon as they get the invitation to dinner, they're thinking, oh, is this a trap? What's happening? He's gonna make us slaves. He's gonna steal our donkeys. Oh dear, the poor donkeys. <laughs> well, yes, but here, here is this group of men. They've still got guilty consciences, which is why they're not really very comfortable yet. But they're going to be invited for dinner. And so the first thing they do is they go to the steward and say, it must be about that, that silver. We better go and explain. You know, we, we found our silver in the mouths of our sacks. Um, we don't know. We paid it, but somebody put it back, so we've brought it back to you. Now, an interesting thing the steward says to them, don't be afraid, he says. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. He says, no, he says, I, I know, I got your money, I remember. It's your God who's done this. Do you notice again how that nudge of the conscience? Actually, you may not have seen him or even been looking for him, but he's been busy all along working to bring about this very situation. So, Joseph comes home, they offer the gifts. He asks after their father, says, is this your younger brother? And again, God be gracious to you, my son. Suddenly Joseph is pronouncing a blessing on this younger brother and then deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. Joseph's really overcome with emotion here, went into his private room and wept, then he washes his face and goes out. He's still hiding his feelings. He's still not revealing who he is, but you can see that God is stirring his emotions and his compassion big time. God is preparing his heart and God has been preparing their hearts, ready for building that bridge to bring them all back together again. But for the time being, Joseph has to control his emotions. Because one thing that's very important, if you're going to bring about reconciliation, first, there has to be forgiveness, unconditional. 
and Joseph has already done that. But trust has been betrayed and you can't just rebuild it just like that. To rebuild trust will take time. So yes, his, his, um, his hostility, his animosity, his hatred or whatever towards his brothers, Jake, Joseph has let go of that. But now in order to build the relationship, he needs to know, can I trust them? Are they any different? How are they treating my younger brother? Is he all right? Perhaps that's part of the reason he wanted him brought there, was to check that he's still alive. They haven't done the same to him that they did to Joseph. But gradually he's seeing, now he's seen, there was the bit about the money in the sacks. Well, they've brought it back. Oh, they're honest men. They sold me for a few bits of silver, but they've brought back this silver that seemed to be a sudden unexpected bounty. And what's more, they're bringing more gifts and they've brought Benjamin. And uh, the next time, Clive will expand a little more on Judah's role in all this. I'm frustrated I can't go the whole way today, but <laughs> there we are. <laughs> I can only stick with my chapter. But he sees things are changing. They also are getting very uneasy about what's God doing in all this? Because when they come in to sit down at the table in Joseph's house, they're all arranged in order of age around the table. These are all adult men. If 12 brothers, well, 11 brothers, came into our, room, into our meeting today, all adults, how many of you could accurately place them from eldest to youngest without a mistake? Pretty miraculous, isn't it, if you've never met them before? But here they are, they're sort of thinking, whoa, this is creepy. How did he know that Reuben was the oldest? Well, obviously he knew Benjamin was the youngest, but how did he know how all the rest of us fitted in? Very strange, a bit odd. And then he's suddenly blessing Benjamin in the name of God Almighty. That's their God. How strange, what's happening here? And then he serves them all from his table but Benjamin gets five times as much as everybody else. Now, for me, that would not be a blessing. A huge plate is a bit daunting for me, but I'm aware that for some people, getting five times as much as anybody else, that would be great, you know, for somebody who really loves food. But of course, it's another mark of somebody being the favorite, somebody for some reason getting better treatment. Just like Joseph's father had perhaps rather unwisely done with Joseph all those years ago and made them all jealous. So he's watching, it's still another test. How will they take to that? How will they think when they see that Benjamin's getting the better portions? And of course, it's also a message to Benjamin, I'm on your side. So, Joseph shows grace, hospitality, generosity, and they're all feasting together before they know where they are. They're actually in this man's house who they were so scared of, and they're all having a feast together, and um, they're drinking wine together, and the, the word used indicates they were drinking quite a lot of it. So it's, it's quite a party they're having here. 
But this is how reconciliation works when God is doing it his way and we're cooperating with it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read this. Verse 18. All this that Paul's been talking about beforehand is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassador, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And, it goes, and then it finishes up, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, now is the day of salvation. Actually, this business about reconciliation is what God's plan is all about. We've hinted at it already when Judah said to Israel, if you don't send Benjamin, we're all lost. Family's gone. And if this family dies, where will that nation come from that God promised to Abraham? If Abraham's family die out, the whole plan will fail. For them, it was about them, but it wasn't just about them. It's about the bigger picture. And God's whole agenda in his plan of salvation is about reconciling to himself the whole creation that is in rebellion and that has fallen. Bringing back to himself those people who have rebelled against his rule and wanted to have it their own way. And then all that creation that was supposed to be under their sway has fallen with them. And the whole thing is now in disarray and is marked by competition and dog-eat-dog -dog principles. That's, that's the sort of the spirit of this world because it's the spirit of the prince of this world who is Satan. But God is in the business of reconciliation. And as we saw with Judah when he stepped up and said, Dad, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be his surety. That might be costly. And we'll find when Clive comes to the next part of it that he was prepared for it to be really costly because in order to bring reconciliation, somebody has to pay a price. Somebody has to take a risk. Somebody has to be willing to put themselves in the firing line, as it were. And that is because that is what love does. It acts for the benefit of the person who is loved. It's not about the feelings of the person who's doing the loving. It's a choice you make. Oh, it's easy when you've got strong, gooey emotions for somebody and they have the same for you and everything's going swimmingly and you're agreeing on everything. Oh, it's lovely. We all agree that, you know, love is great. But what about when the chips are down and things are actually a lot tougher and that person isn't so lovable anymore or they've hurt you in some way? Love has to act for their benefit. Love has to seek 
to bless them. Love is seeking for how it can serve, not for how it can get. That's what love means in God's terms. And as we're told in John's letter, God is love. That is his very nature. And when love is hurt, and when love is rejected, and when love is spurned, and they can see people reaping the horrible consequences of having done that, love reaches out with the offer of forgiveness and acceptance and a willingness to rebuild relationship and gives us the opportunity to rebuild trust again. Because this is far more far-reaching than, you know, me and my husband, or me and my mother and father, or me and my children, or me and my brothers and sisters. This is about God's plan. And God is working through this to bring about his bigger plan, and also the details of Joseph's plan and Jacob's whole family's plan. So, the key always is that the security lies in knowing God is in charge. Nothing can happen that God has not foreseen. And if God has foreseen it, he has provided for it at cost, enormous cost to himself. And it says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He wasn't up there watching while his son died. He was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We are now in Christ and Christ is in us. And if we're going to, like Joseph, be a kind of an example of what Christ's ways are like, we need to be the ones who are willing to pay the price of love, to take the risk and to have the courage to take the risk of rebuilding relationship, not naively, it's not, we're not stupid. Trust has to be rebuilt, and that's a two-way process. You can't rebuild a relationship unilaterally. You can forgive unilaterally and open the way for rebuilding of relationship. But for the relationship to be restored, it's two-way. But somebody has to make the first move. That will be costly. That's what Joseph did. And we see gradually this family beginning to be rebuilt.